what are you talking about? You're, this is insane. Yeah, you're playing with the flu. I was dead with the flu for like a week before the Australian Open started. What advice do you have for players that want to get to the next level? I think there's there's two things. Where was the jump? What happened? And you can't just say, I practiced hard. I was a bad practicer. <laughs> so what happened? You know, you often wonder what kind of offspring you get when you get champions together and they start having children and then their children start having children. Well, if you want to know, all you have to do is look at the Vanderway family because champions beget champions who beget champions. And today we're talking to Coco Vanderway. She's a good friend of mine. She is a lights out tennis player, won the doubles at the U.S. Open last year. And she's also funny, she's opinionated, she knows what she wants, and she is not bashful about telling you. We just played tennis recently, so she's taught me about what I can't do and what she can. So, Coco Vanderway, you're going to love this young lady. She's smart, she's sharp, and she is one competitive person. Here we go. First off, you're from a really athletic family, right? I'm a, from a very famous family, yeah. that's for sure, yes. Yeah, that's for sure. So tell me about your parents and your family overall. My family overall, I lived with my grandparents. My mom was a single mom, so I knew my grandparents, like second parents basically, and they both lived with me till they both passed away. And my it starts from my grandfather who played in the NBA um, right. as well as going to medical school. He did a lot of other things behind the scenes um, with President Eisenhower and he actually helped build the Staples Center um, that we now know today. Oh, um, really? Yes. And then my grandmother, um, she was Miss America in 1952. Her story is actually really crazy how she became Miss America. She was raised Mormon and the bishop of the church said that the Women of the United States need a great role model. And it was actually her first ever pageant she ever entered and last You're one. Kidding. And so how their their love story is really cool. My grandfather evaded her for a long time because he just thought she was a beauty queen. And I don't have time for a beauty queen. I'm doing medical school and playing in the NBA. <laughs> and um, he actually played with uh, my grandmother's brother, Mel Hutchins, right. in the NBA. And finally, he got tricked into taking my grandmother um, to a premiere in New York City and fell in love with her and hardly spent a day apart since that moment. Wow. And then it goes my Uncle Kiki. Um, he played in the NBA for many years. He's now uh, working for the NBA um, as well as he's worked for a couple other teams. Then it goes my mom. Uh, she was a two-time Olympian in two different sports, swimming, First in 76, was also going to compete in 80, but that was a boycott year. So right. she was unable to compete. And when she that happened, she decided she was going to sit on the beach and be a beach bum. She was going to UCLA at the time. And her dad called her up and said, either you play another sport or you get a job. And so she tried to, at sitting in, on the beach in California, she saw beach volleyball and thought, oh, I could do this. Never played volleyball in her life. And tried to walk onto the UCLA team. And they said, you're here on scholarship to swim. We want you to swim. So she said, forget that. Transfer to SC and played indoor volleyball for SC and made the national team um, and played in the 84 Olympics. Wow. Then it goes my Aunt Heather, who is uh, a doctor, now retired, but she played professional horse polo. And then my other uncle, Brooke Vandeway, who played pro beach volleyball. That's my uh, basic lineage. Um, and That's then, pretty good lineage. Yep. Then my older brother played D1 volleyball for Pepperdine. He now works for Yelp and me. And then I have two younger siblings who are trying to figure figure it out for themselves. They're 10 years younger. Are they athletic? My little sister is very athletic. She's um, trying out for the national team in water polo. Oh, wow. Yes. My old uh, younger brother is six foot eight, um, not as athletic, but very much into computer coding and loves it. Wow. He's six foot eight? At 16. Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> but he's not athletic. He's not as athletic as what we deem athletic, um, yeah. but he tries. He really enjoys playing basketball, but he's way more into computer coding and to each their own. 
Did they encourage you to be athletic or was that pressure? It was never pressure to get started into it. I think it was pressure more so once you started to take a sport a sport seriously. And uh, it was just something that you did in my family. And my mom's rule was if you're inside, you're doing homework. So you might as well go outside and play. And I was not a studious type. So I definitely chose to be outside playing sports. And I played a lot of sports. Were you a student? Were you a good student or did you just blow it off? I had grades I was expected to make. Um, If I got below about a 3.7, that was unacceptable. Uh, But other than that, I did not try or excel to go any further than that. How did you decide on tennis? Because you're talking basketball, volleyball, swimming. You've got it all in your DNA. So why tennis? Uh, Swimming was never going to be it because my mother did not want her daughter to be in a pool at 5 a.m. because she went through it. Yeah, I get that. Uh, Volleyball, I did not like because I could only hit the ball one time. Basketball, I loved. I played basketball for a very long time. It was something my grandfather and I did together a lot. But uh, tennis became my sport actually through my older brother. I was the younger sister. We're a year and a half apart that just followed him around into everything. And my mom basically knowing that put him into tennis, knowing I would follow him. And I ended up just liking it a lot um, through a bad year in basketball because tennis is singular and I didn't have to worry about other girls on the team. Did you know right away you were going to be good at it? I was actually a really bad junior. I was not good. I started playing at 11 years old and I was really bad. I, I just was inexperienced. I didn't have the time on court because not only was I late starting in tennis, in tennis terms, but I also played an many other sports. I was playing soccer, basketball, and tennis all at the same time. And I finally took tennis seriously at 13 and I went professional at 16. So it was about when I was 15, almost 16 years old, where I started to be decent and at least thinking I was a hot shot in my own way. And at 16, I won the Junior US Open. Right. And I had no aspirations to go to school. I, I wanted to be a professional and I had the opportunity to do so. So when you won the Junior US Open, was that a surprise to you? Very much so. I couldn't even get into the tournament on my own ranking. So there's two sets of rankings. There's the ITF rankings, right. which is worldwide. And then there's the USTA rankings, which is only in uh, the United States. So I needed a wild card from the USTA to be able to play in the US Open juniors. Really? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you won it from a wild card? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, that had to be a shocker. It was a shocker to everyone, including myself, and in a certain way. But I, being the top junior in the United States, I honestly thought I was the best junior in the world because in at the time we had the Williams sisters, uh, Lindsay Davenport, Jennifer Capriati, Hall of Famers from the United States. So if you were good in America, you were good in the world. I didn't have that ITF experience of playing on a world stage. So going in there, no one knew who I was. So I think it was more of a shock for everyone else more so than myself. Yeah. And you play differently than a lot of women at the time because you play really aggressively. You attack the ball. I do. And I also come forward into the net. Even now, that's still pretty rare. And and the game is going towards that facet of having to finish up at the net because there's basically two types of players. There's the aggressor and the defensive player. And if the girls are getting more athletic as well as just tennis and athletes in general are getting more athletic. So it's harder to get the ball by them if you're the aggressor. So you have to basically take time away. And tennis is about angles. So if I'm coming forward, I'm taking your time away and being able to finish off the point a lot easier. So what's your training regimen now? What do you do to train? Right now I'm doing a lot of rehab because of my ankle injury from Wimbledon, but my normal training is I'm in the gym at about 8 a.m. I finish at 10. I go straight into tennis practice. I then break for lunch. I either have another tennis practice or another gym and tennis practice. Would this be the ankle? That is my ankle. Yes, that's straight after. It was nice little grapefruit on there. I did it about two hours earlier. When I called out the trainer to come out on court because I was in pain, we took off the tape and it looked exactly like that. And then I played two more hours on it. Jeez. Did it hurt at the time when you were playing as bad as it did later? 
Uh, yes and no. Um, I think throbbing actually bothers me more so than immediate pain. So I was in pain in a throbbing way and it ended up being, um, osteophytes in the front of the ankle and a ligament tear. So, Oh really? It It did tear the ligament. It did. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's been a long rehab process and unfortunately I haven't had time to rest to get the inflammation out of there because this happened in July, which is peak summer season for us. And there's just no opportunity to break. So right now I have one more tournament left in Singapore and then I will break um, up until next year. But I've been uh, basically doing rehab for two straight weeks now, no tennis. I was watching when it happened. I was surprised that you went on. Well, it was it was funny because I I was actually I don't know if I would say I was competitive, but I was winning in a weird way of maybe it was the girl knowing that I'm injured and not knowing what to do at that point because I can play with you mentally, but also in the game style that I can play, I'm capable of of doing things quickly and and in a ferocious way. Yeah, you can end a point quick. I couldn't move, so I had to. Yeah, you just had to go for winners. Essentially, yeah. But seemed to. Work out. It worked. I lost 8-6 in the third set. I was going to retire in the first set, but I kept winning. So I was like, well, maybe who knows how bad it actually is. I had no idea. So I thought maybe, oh, it's just a normal ankle ankle sprain. I'm going to be a little bit sore, but it turned out not to be that. How much better is it now? I would say it's about 70 to 80% there where I'm, it's more the confidence of I'm not going to feel pain moving. That's the hardest part. Do they say it'll get completely better? Yes. Yes. If you were going to change something about your game, what would it be? I would say my patience level. Yeah. I don't feel I always, on a consistent basis, have a good patience level. So take me through this, because there are a lot of people that are listening right now that play tennis, and there are a lot of people that don't play, but they watch, and your game is probably on the short list of the most entertaining games out there. Would you agree? I mean, uh, you're not going to be bored watching you play. I, I would hope not. There's going to be fireworks. Yes. And I don't mean just fireworks of you getting fired up, but I mean, you're going to hit shots people don't get to see real often. Because like you say, you come in, you attack the ball. But take me through this. When you get impatient, what goes through your head? Uh, it's It starts with boredom for me. During a match? It happens during a match because you do something so many times in, in a repetitive situation. And we play from January 1st up until the first week of November. So we're playing for a lot of months at a time. I mean, I know everyone sees the Grand Slams, but they're like the U.S. Open. There are five tournaments in before the U.S. Open. Right. And that's starting from straight after Wimbledon. So we're playing five weeks straight going into the U.S. Open, and you get bored of what you do. Um, Not every day you go into work super excited about what you're doing or firing on all cylinders or, you know, maybe you woke up feeling a little bit sick or something's going on at home or, or whatever it may be. And I think for me, it starts with boredom of uh, not having a clear mindset of what I'm going to do or I this is happening too easily. So this isn't as exciting anymore. If you're in a match and you get bored, what do you do? I have triggers. So I work with a mental coach and I have triggers to uh, snap myself out of it. Um, uh, It starts with visualizing for me. So I start uh, the night before and I visualize the situation that may or may not happen. As far as I look at the uh, stadium that I'm going to be in, the opponent across the net, all these things I'm visualizing with an MP3 tape. And then I will listen to it again the morning of, and then I will go out warm up, go practice, and then warm up again for the match. And so I'll sit on the changeovers and visualize. If I'm receiving, I will visualize, okay, this is how I want to hit the forehand return or the backhand return. Um, And if I'm serving, it goes the same way. This is where I want to serve the first point, how it's going to look from a bird's eye view and also from actual my point of view. Okay. So you play it out in your head. Yes. And you see it from above. Yes. When you see it, do you see yourself mechanically? Do you see yourself hitting the shot? It depends what I'm working on. So if I'm working on through the week in advance or what my coach has been telling me, it can be technical. It can be about mechanics of where I want the contact to be, of how I want the backswing to feel like, 
or it can be a mental mind mindset of, okay, go get the ball, be aggressive because I'm being too passive and I'm getting dictated early. So it is very situational. Do you believe in muscle memory? Yes. When you're visualizing, do you feel the muscle memory? Do you include that in your visualization? I definitely count on that um, from the hours of practice that I do that yeah. when it's more in a nervous situation because I do get nervous um, in different portions of a match. And when you're nervous, I think muscle memory is definitely going to kick in. Do you ever get on the court and feel like somebody screwed somebody else's arms onto your body? <laughs> I yes. mean, where it's like all of a sudden you can't find the ball. That's happened um, a handful of times. So usually first rounds of Grand Slams. Yeah. That happens um, where I'm so nervous uh, that I, it's like I forgot how to play tennis. And also the worst one I've ever experienced is playing for my country in Fed Cup. It took me three or four tries to feel like, oh, yes, I can play tennis. I'm sorry that you go through that, but I am so glad to hear that somebody else does that. I mean, even a pro, because I play every day. And sometimes I get out there and honest to God, I feel like somebody screwed somebody else's arms on my body. I can't get my arm to go where it's supposed to. I can't hit the ball. I cannot get the ball over the net. And then the next day I can't miss. It's so bizarre how tennis works like that. It's it's um, That's why it's so amazing when someone is at the end of the week um, of a tournament because there's only one winner at the end of the week. So they were, especially Grand Slams, you were able to perform for two weeks straight at a peak pinnacle state. Yeah. You hit the ball flat compared to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Do you do that on purpose? Have you developed your game that way? Or is that just the way you learned to start with? That was the way I learned to start with. I've actually am and still am trying to create more top spin and heaviness to the ball. Um, so the weight of my shot is really felt. Um, instead oh, I of I think it's felt. <laughs> but even more so, if it's if it's right in here versus up above uh, your strike zone, which is above your shoulder, then it's you're not as strong up here. So it's it's even more yeah. of a chance that they will miss. Or if it's down low, if I decide to slice, so yeah, when I'm you hit an up the that. line forehand, that's a heavy ball. I've never hit it, but I've watched it a thousand times. That's a heavy ball. <laughs> I get some good pop on it. I yes, do. you do. I do. Do you know how fast it is? Oh, probably high 80s, 90s. Yeah, it's got to be 90. I think there was um, there was some article or stat sheet that came out. I believe it was during Wimbledon of the top uh, men versus the top women that were in the quarterfinals and uh, their shot uh, MPH, and it was significantly higher um, on the women's side, actually, more so than the men. Um, but mine was top one or two, definitely. I'm yeah, both. when you're moving to the ball, if you're standing still, maybe it's 80s. But when they make you move, bad idea. <laughs> I love a good running forehand. It's I like know. Pete Sampras. It's, That's what I'm saying. I've fun. studied your game. When they make you move, bad idea. They're much better off they just hit it to you. Just hit it to her. Then it's I get bored, and then a mistake happens. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get it, so they might as well just hit it to you because it's a lot faster when you have to run to get it, which is a good thing, I guess. If you're in a match, do you consider yourself a better front runner, or are you better coming from behind? Front runner. I, I feel like I'm a better front runner just because there with my serve, it's it's demoralizing. Um, it's, it's very, yeah. there's, there's very few times that I'll get broken. So if I get a lead early, um, then it will come to my advantage. That's why I like to receive at the start, because if I can get that early break, it's very demoralizing. And then panic sets in for my opponents. It's, it's all a crazy mental game. Yeah, no, it really is. I know every player is different, but do you have a mindset when you start a match? Like some people start out feeling their opponent out, trying to find their weaknesses and then exploit them. Or do you start out to dictate the pace of the match? Do you start out trying to establish a certain shot to dominate with? Do you have a strategy that you start out with, or is it different every time? Yes, I, I have a general strategy. Um, it does change with the type of player that you're playing against, um, but it definitely is a strategy to dominate early. And I get into a mind frame of... Um, basically hating my opponent because that's what I need to be able to be competitive. And if I, if I show that presence and, and that aura, then 
I definitely feel better. And I believe then that my game and my best is better than your best, no matter who it is. And because if you're going out thinking, oh, my backhand's not as good as as their shot, and if I get stuck into the backhand corner too many times, I'm in trouble, then you've already lost on that side. So I don't I don't think like that. So it's definitely a dominating um, aura presence that I try and come out, out with. Do you think you can beat anybody in the world? Yes, when I do. When you step on the court, do you believe there's nobody you can put over there that you can't beat? I honestly believe that because if there's what what else am I competing for? I'm I'm competing for the trophy at the end of the week and and or the gold medal or the Fed Cup cup for for Team USA. So I honestly don't don't think I can't not beat somebody. Do you stay away from the other players on the tour? I am not a social butterfly, but you travel with them so much that you have to have friends out there. Pete Sampras is a longtime friend of mine, and he said he quit for two reasons when he quit. He said one was he just got tired of the regimentation. He said he had to sleep in a room certain degrees. Mm -hmm. He had to eat certain foods eight hours a day of training or practicing or whatever. And the other thing he said, it just got lonely because he said, I can't be around the other players because it will ruin the mystique. He said, if they get to know you, familiarity breeds contempt. And he said, it's kind of like you got a bluff in on them. And if you spend a lot of time around them, they start to see you as human. You lose the edge. Do you believe that? I can see that. I can see that. I don't, I think it's based on everyone's personality. I I don't know Pete that well, but for my personality, I, in general, don't like big social circles. I don't like to be out and about all that much. I like to be very quiet, but I definitely agree. Tennis and the tennis tour is extremely lonely. It's very difficult. That's why we build our own little teams with mm-hmm. coach, physio, trainer, whoever you want to implement as your team. And you stick very close to them because it's, you know, you hold your cards to your chest. I mean, it's, he described that very well. If, if there's a chink in the armor, they will exploit, exploit it. Yeah. Is it harder for you to play a friend than somebody you don't really know? No, no. I, I grew up with boys, so it's not that big of a deal to me. Yeah. I grew up with being around my older brother and his friends and I can, I can put it to the side. I, other people can't, and a lot of girls can't, but it's not a big deal to me. Doesn't bother you? No, I'm actually probably more intense and, and more uh, in their face a little bit. Do you have a best friend on tour, two or three girls that you like better than others? Yes. Yes, I definitely do. Um, Bethany Maddox-Sands, um, Shelby Rogers. Uh, I've, I'm forcing my doubles partner now, Ashley Barty from Australia, to... Um, come out of her shell and, and hang with me a lot more. Yeah. Um, but I, I keep it in about a three, four person close knit circle. Do you hit with them or you just hit with a hitting coach? No, I hit with other players. Um, it doesn't matter if it's them or anyone else. I, I enjoy it. Um, because I hit with my coach so much when I'm at home that it's nice to see a different ball, a different pace, um, a different idea and to try things against, uh, uh, your opponents and the other girls through weeks and weeks that you travel together. So I, I enjoy hitting with other girls. What do you think of Maria Sharapova? She was never one of my favorite players growing up. Um, I didn't like uh, the whole drug sequence um, of how it was handled by the WTA as well as um, how she mainly how she was welcomed back so easily. I I'm very much into a clean sport, and that was a little bit frustrating because it's it was changed more so for a name more than an actual what happened and let's stay by the rules and by the book. Um, but other than that, I have no real interactions with her, so I can't personally know, know her. It was surprising that she came back so fast. I mean, I was surprised because she was warned as I understand it, a number of times. It wasn't like it was a surprise. It was my understanding that she was told, this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay. 
and kept doing it anyway. Well, what you get at the, I believe it's around October, September, you get this passport is what they call it of the upcoming uh, things that are going to be banned or suspended or, you know, changed as how much of a dosage you can have. And um, from what I read, her agent handles all that. And he uh, basically dropped the ball and didn't inform her that this drug was um, going to be taken off of being okay to take. And the funny part was that we actually had a blood drawing the start of the week at Australia where it actually got picked up, but it didn't get picked up in that test. It actually got picked up when she made the quarters where you have to do another drug testing in the quarterfinals. So that's actually the most interesting part for me as as far as the uh, basically breaking the testing of who dropped the ball there. How does it not come up in a blood test a week before, but it comes yeah. up in a quarterfinal about a week, week and a half later? You talked about her doing dirty tricks during Wimbledon in 2015, mm -hmm. disrupting your serve. Right. Like second serve. What was she doing? So I, I felt it was very much gamesmanship as far as she would, you're supposed to not be um, moving around during a motion. Um, it's hindrance on the play. It's like if a ball kid dropped a ball during a swing or your start of your motion or a ball came over from another court, you stop and you, you restart. So she was doing it in between uh, first and second serves. And I felt it was a hindrance and it was being done on purpose because she didn't start doing this um, from the first point, first ball. She started doing it in the third set. So that's if she had started doing it from the first point, first ball, I wouldn't have had a problem with it. But since it was obviously not um, done, it was not done in a professional manner of, you know, fair play, fair game. So you said something about it. I told the umpire um, I felt that she was doing it on purpose and that because the umpire is supposed to be able to um, say yeah. something. Not It's not the player's job to say something. Um, and the umpire, I believe, if I remember correctly, told me that she didn't see it. And I said, well, pay attention to it because this is what's happening. If you see something like that and they don't see it, will you say something to the player? I mean, you shouldn't have to because it's their job. But would you say something to the player? I probably would if it was bothering me enough. Um, just just because I, I don't I, – I, didn't grow up in the white collar tennis world. I grew up in in team sports world where you were able to talk trash to opponents and and be able to call them on their bluff. And I don't think I would have a problem with it. No, you've broken a few rackets. Yes. Do you do it to pump yourself up, or do you do it because you're frustrated and it's an impulse thing? Both. Both. I think it's. Um, it initially started uh, for frustration, but if I'm feeling um, like I'm lagging in a way of I don't have the energy and the fire going in my belly, then it's it's definitely a pump up thing, which is which is weird. I love to play with passion, so I think it's it's a um, basically letting out some some steam and and frustration one and two to kind of light a fire under myself the first page of a book never tells the full story and those news alerts and headlines like the ones we get on our phones don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about stories are like people multi-layered and complex it takes some digging to find the truth but when we find it it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. What's the biggest fine you've ever had? Uh, 10000 10000 For breaking a racket? No. What was it for? No, it was for the Australian Open. It was a combination of not starting play on time. I was sick with the flu, and I needed some potassium and energy. Um, and I was waiting for bananas to come onto the court because I was literally the only thing I could stomach at that moment. And there was no bananas on court, which usually there are. Yeah, um, there's always bananas. So I was waiting for them, and the umpire decided it wasn't uh, a good enough reason to wait. And it was during a set break, so um, there was a minute and a half time to do it. But 
And I, it literally came, I took a bite and put it down. He deemed that I wasn't starting play on time. So I got fined for that. And then same point in the match, uh, later on, I basically said some coarse language and got fined for that. So the combination was 10 grand. Coarse language to him? No. Oh, just, no. Yeah. Just in general. Just in general. So he's a tight. <laughs> essentially. I mean, essentially. come on. The choice of words, I would have picked better ones, but you know, yeah. key of the moment and you're sick and not feeling well, I can't blame anything that happened. Yeah, you're playing with the flu. I was dead with the flu for like a week before the Australian Open started. And it's hot down there. I was dying. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was dying. So I got to ask you about Serena. Sure. We all know what's happened. What was your take on that? My take is is two th- two things. One, two wrongs don't make a right, and I both I think both her and the umpire were wrong. Um, but there has to be an understanding of that when you're competing for two weeks, you are emotionally, physically, just everything exhausted because it it's that that much energy is being drained out of you to play for two weeks and be around all these people, have your game face on every time you go in, do the interviews. Maybe there's some outside influences going on. And so what is actually normal of her to do is to break a racket, to basically light a fire under herself. And I think the the coaching call from the umpire was probably the wrong call. Um, I thought the coaching thing was so so mundane that it really wasn't a big deal, um, which counts as a warning. And then the breaking the racket went into a point. And what I think she didn't understand or realize was that she actually received a warning for the coaching. So that's what what set her off for um, post point. And then I don't think the umpire did anything to defuse the situation. And unfortunately, that just robbed everyone of a real potentially a really good final and all the ticket holders a really good match. And that's not what an umpire's job is, is not to influence a match. His job is to call the score, make sure everyone's playing fair and and basically make sure everything's going kosher. And he influenced a match in his decisions. Yeah, I hate it when any kind of official becomes an outcome determinative factor in a match. I don't care if baseball, football, anything. That's why I like playing last two minutes or the last quarter of any game. Let them play. This yeah. is especially playoffs or, or anything like that, NBA championships. You don't see the ticky-tack fouls being called. Yeah, And just, just let them play. There's high emotions going on. And athletes are living on a high emotion to be able to compete to that extent. However, she didn't let it go. She just kept on and on and on. And I do believe this because I was there the night before. I wasn't there that day, but I was there the night before. And it is totally possible that she did not hear and understand that she had gotten a warning. Yes. In fact, I thought that she thought they had resolved it. That's because what I she thought. went up and said, "You know, I don't cheat. I don't need to cheat." And he said, "I get it." They had a civil good exchange, and I thought she thought he said, "Okay, gotcha." I thought she thought that deal's over. I agree. So I thought she thought when she broke the racket, that was the warning. Correct. That's that's what I think she was on about. But because she went on and on and wouldn't let it go, I think that's his fault for not diffusing the situation of instead of antagonizing and keeping on poking a situation and, and stoking the fire, he could have probably figured out a better way of, all right, let's resolve this in a way of I'm right, you're wrong. We're not going to agree, agree to disagree whatever the it ends up happening but i felt like he was more stoking the fire than actually calming the, the situation down i think he knew what the environment was i he think he could have called her over and said listen i don't know if you know what's going on here but i'm just telling you as a courtesy here you need to shut up or there's going to be a problem so i'm just telling you it heads is up. so loud in ash um, stadium that you 
can't hear anything. Yeah. You can't hear anything from someone this close as you and I are is saying something, let alone when you're at the baseline, which is 20 odd yards away and he's in an umpire chair. Yeah. You can't hear anything that's happening. Even if they're calling the score on the microphone, you hardly hear that. It's just so loud in there. I will say this. I've never seen her do that when she's winning. No. No. There's no reason to. You're winning. What's going wrong? <laughs> it could be her way of lighting a fire under herself and taking and maybe throwing her opponent off her game um, to basically you know, realize what you're doing. How many times do you see a person realize they're about to beat a top player and then completely choke? Yeah. So maybe it was to slow down the game, slow down this, the, um, and, and get, uh, Naomi to realize she's about to win the U S open and beat Serena in the process. It could also be an excuse to lose. Oh, I didn't think of that. Hey, they stole it from me. It wasn't me. It was them as an excuse to lose. Only Serena knows what the true answer is. Yeah, exactly. But she's a great player. Yes, and a great girl. I've spent lots of time with her. a really good citizen. I think she's a great ambassador for the game. I don't know her well, but I know her, and she's... No, I've I've spent a lot of time with her on and off the court with Fed Cup teams and just being up and around, and I really enjoy Serena's time. Do you think your feistiness, your energy your passion you wouldn't change that would you no i wouldn't you don't want to change i know i know it's easy to say yes i would love to take away the racket breaking or the the fist pumps of of emotion of come on but honestly it's it's my it's my prerogative and also i this is why i enjoy it i enjoy the passion i enjoy being entertaining because i do play for the fans i that's why I fell in love with tennis was one, because I'm extremely competitive just in the way I was raised. I had to be. Um, but also number two, I enjoy feeling the passion from the crowd, whether they're for you, against you or whatever have it be. It's exciting. It's exciting to be out there when a crowd is really involved and in, into a match. Oh, yeah. Do you ever get into verbal barbing with your opponent? No. No. You don't ever go back and forth that way? No, I, I've never had a situation like that. I've never felt it necessary. They don't try to pick fights with you sometimes? I don't think so. I I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd be the first person to pick a fight with, that's for sure. No. I, I, <laughs> I don't think I give that kind of uh, idea. No, you don't pull for that. <laughs> you don't pull for that at all. And plus, I think that's more of an American thing to kind of quipe and barb and yeah. there's so many... Uh, Europeans, Eastern Europeans, um, South Americans all through the tour that it's just, you know, not, I definitely do that when I'm practicing with other Americans, but you know, it's, it's just, I think it's kind of our, our thing, our, the way we were raised in sports. Yeah. Talking trash. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it. I, I think it's a lot of fun. So you have a lot of people that follow you on social media. Because you're a very popular player. I mean, people love your lifestyle. They love your look. They love your game. They love your persona. Do you engage with people on social media? Sometimes. Sometimes. I don't, I actually don't like social media all that much. Uh-huh. I think it's, you know, comes with the job of, of what you have to do. I think social media is good and bad. I, I, I'm a fan of sharing my life and, and my story. I think it's it's inspiring to see, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think I show that in, in what I do. Do the haters bother you? I think you'd be crazy to say they don't um, because you know, it's, it's crazy that people think it's okay to talk to other people in this way. Yeah. I, I would never, I mean, it's, it's because of the betting culture that's around tennis. Um, but also I think... People just love to tear down other people right now and in the society that we're in, which is awful, even from reporters. I think they love to tear down people. And I grew up idolizing sports figures and they were heroes. I mean, who didn't want to be a like Mike kid? 
Yeah. Uh, but now all they want to do is find the clickbait and go around and, and tear you down, which I think is awful in, in the sporting community. I call them keyboard bullies. Yes, they're awful. I guarantee you they would never say that to you on an no elevator. No way. No they way. They would never say that to you in the I've hallway. I've actually uh, ran into someone in England and actually asked them, you know, what what's your deal? And they immediately backed down and, and uh, it's like, sorry, sorry, didn't mean it. I lost, you know two thousand dollars on you and i was like so what yeah then don't bet don't bet don't go out there and bet two thousand dollars on me i'm not gonna win every time i've got haters and all you can't do what i do and deal with emotional issues every day and not bring out certain people i've had critics of the show and i thought okay you know what let's just talk to them and so we thought we'll just follow the trail, contact five of these people, and invite them to come. Let's just have a panel and just tell us what it is. Because, I mean, people that were just going on and on and on and on. Identified five of them, contacted all five of them. They didn't watch the show. Had never seen a show. (laughs) That's so crazy. They saw promos, but had actually never seen a show from start to finish. And when you ask them, say, we want you to come and talk about it. Let's do it. We'll fly you to L.A. We'll do the whole thing. And it's, well, you know, I actually don't watch the show. I'm like, are you me? Is that just cowardice or or they just didn't want to openly admit it? I mean, they're cowards regardless. I've talked to professionals that have rendered opinions about the show, and we contact them just to talk privately. They said, well, I don't actually watch the show. Generally, my sense is, are you kidding me? That's why. I don't pay much attention anymore because most of them are living in their grandmother's basement. Who writes into television What's frustrating shows? is like, okay, you can say, oh, you played a crummy match or something like that. But the ones that frustrate me the most are that decide your, your moral compass by watching you go play a tennis match or watched you play for three games. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> You're, this is insane. Yeah, get a life. That's what makes me crazy. So- what athletes do you look up to? Um, I my favorite athletes growing up. Um, I I played soccer because of Mia Hamm that are outside my family. Uh, then I would have to say I really enjoyed Michael Jordan. Um, I then probably Phelps was huge. Um, oh yeah. But I I enjoyed sports. I really I really do enjoy sports and. I'm a avid sports fan. I, I do I'm one of I'm one of the regulars that is bummed when my team is losing and and super pumped and will try to go to a game if I can. If you were gonna change something about tennis, what would it be? Oh, tons. Uh there's there's a lot happening. I think um in in tennis I, I feel in the marketing capacity, I think everyone that is a casual tennis fan only watches Grand Slams, which are marketed extremely well, and they make a profit because of that. And during the regular season, the regular tour, I don't believe it's it's done as well, um, as well as the amount of say so that the players have in general. Um, there's there's these uh, meetings and powwows and whatever but have you, but what actually gets done and what's actually important is so it never happens is never executed. So I think, I think there's a couple things. I also hate that they put in these rules that where players are never consulted about like the shot clock um, rule, the time uh, during walkout change of ends actually in the warm up, players were never consulted. So I would I would like that to stop. I'd like us to be consulted before new ideas that actually change in uh, the sport um, end up going into play. They really don't talk to you all about that? No, we were not consulted. Really? Mm-hmm. They just said, we're going to do this. And who makes that decision? Well, for the U.S. Open, the USTA does. Hmm. That didn't seem right. No, and they luckily our um, bodies of the WTA and the ATP decided to put in the twenty-five second shot clock into the 
upcoming tournaments so we could get used to it. Um, but it's really, it's really frustrating when those things happen. Yes. <laughs> when does the shot clock start? When the umpire calls a score. Okay. As soon as he says the score. Yes. No matter where the players are. Yes. So if you're both at net and he calls the score, you both have to go back and collect dry off or what it, whatever. It's still, mm-hmm. it's 25 seconds. Mm-hmm. Are they enforcing it? Yes, I th- I think it's very discretionary, which makes it also difficult. Um, but there's so many moving parts in just happening on the tennis court with the ball kids and umpires and, you know, the crowd settling and things like that, where, you know, for me, I think it hinders all that of how is the crowd supposed to get engaged and, and hyped up or, you know, whistle and boo a situation when they only have 25 seconds and the player has to be up to line, ready to go. That's no fun. Yeah, there's no momentum built. No, it stops the momentum every time. And I think it's just a complete oversight. And plus, you know, kids drop a ball or they're not paying attention or whatever it is. And or like you said, we're both at net and have to walk back. And we're at the U.S. Open when it's the craziest, hottest summer I think I've ever been a part of over there. And you're sweating like crazy and you got to dry off. Otherwise, that racket's coming flying out of your hand just because it's so, so hot. Yeah. I got to ask you this on behalf of all the tennis players that are out there that just, you know, they call them hacks or whatever that just play (laughs) country club players, weekend players, whatever. What advice do you have for players that want to get to the next level, want to beat those people that they can't beat now, want to go up from a three, five to a four, a four to a four, five. What advice would you give somebody to take their game to the next level? I think there's, there's two things. One, nothing beats practice. And it's, it's not, I, I grew up with the Johnny Wooden pyramid of success. So yeah. perfect practice makes perfect play. So it's not just blase. All right. I'm just out here with my buds um, going through the motions. It's actually, intensive practice, which could be 30 minutes. It can be an hour. It doesn't have to be more than that. As long as it's done with a purpose and you're actually getting work done. Um, and second, have fun. I think things get too seriously, seriously put out there with numbers and I want to beat this person or that. It will come. Success comes when you, when you work for it. There's, there's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. I've been playing for like 40 years. I didn't play as a junior or anything, but I've been playing since Christ was a child, I guess. <laughs> and we still do two-on-one drills, you know, where you get a bucket, two mm-hmm. guys at net and just pound and holy God. You're dying. 10 minutes, you're just throwing <laughs> up a lung. Yes. Just unbelievable. Yeah, and your arm's about to fall off. Your legs yeah. are gonna... Your legs are burning. Yep. Your knees are shot for the last 10 years anyway. But you really get where you can groove a shot and you start, you know, snapping it and it really makes a difference. Yes. Tennis is a repetition game. And, you know, that's what I think with muscle memory. It'll come. Well, I've got a clay court at my house and a lot of the top players, particularly in the spring when they're heading into the French, come there and work out. I watch those guys and, you know, they'll come out and play. But they do exactly what you're saying. They drill, 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 drill. And they'll go on the clock like five minutes or ten minutes all out nonstop. I mean, as soon as the ball missed, the coach throws another one out there. And it's like a ten-minute point full out. And then they stop and then take a minute and then start again. And mm-hmm. just watching them do it is inspiring. It's it's kind of a science because you want to train how you're going to play. Yeah. And, you know, most most points are 30 seconds long, um, but you also have only 25 seconds to be back at full, full top speed. So it kind of depends with the coach of what you're going to be working on, whether it's, all right, let's let's push him or her right now and let's try and keep the ball in play for 50 shots in a row. And we're going to work on the mental game or actually let's burn his or her legs out, and we're going to run run him or her a lot more. Yeah. Now, you said you weren't that good as a junior. At some level, you weren't that great. And then you <laughs> went to junior, I was hoping when you were 16. 
where was the jump? What happened? And you can't just say, I practiced hard. I was a bad practicer. <laughs> so what happened? Is this just genetics? I think genetics definitely help um, as far as me being able to learn things quickly. Uh, but also, I think it also helped that I played a lot of sports. I was a, I was a good athlete before I was a good tennis player. And I, it shows in my game now that I'm still a way better athlete than I am a tennis player. But also, I think your game, the moon ballers, what, which I grew up with, that hit the ball so high, they basically disappear once you hit like under 16s and under 18s. And that's when the power players start cream rises to the, to the top. And so I was I was just finally coming into my own as First of all, maturing. One, I was very immature and still was up until about 20. I I honestly didn't become a professional professional till I was 20, where I was sacrificing, you know, what I actually, you know, social life, family life. All right, like Pete Sampras, you have to go to bed at a certain time, eat a certain thing, all, the, all these things that come into play. But when I was... 13 I was like okay things are clicking for me my techniques coming easier my my power is still there I'm able to hit the locations on my serve and still be a better athlete than these girls and a little luck comes along your way my grandfather always told me better lucky than good sometimes <laughs> there is a lot of it just being athleticism I get that I started college on a football scholarship and got a bad head injury so I took up tennis and finished college on a tennis scholarship because I'd never played before. And just by being an athlete, I was able to barely make it onto a small school tennis team and play for a year just by being an athlete. You know, and I'm, they're looking at me like, I don't know, how did he hit that <laughs> ball? You're not supposed to hit it like that. But I was able to get there and get it back over the net. Right. And athleticism does play a big part. Yes. Yes. I think that definitely jumped me a few notches ahead way earlier than I probably should have. I've watched you play a lot, a lot. And there's something I've noticed about you that you'll be fiery. You'll be pissed off. You'll break a racket. You'll be going back and forth with the referee or line judge. And you seem like you're... A Tasmanian devil out of control, just really pissed off until you turn around and encounter a ball boy or girl. And then all of a sudden, it clicks and you're never harsh or mean with them. That tells me you're never out of control. No, I... I would probably, <laughs> I, my, I was raised better than that. <laughs> I think it's the easiest way um, to state it as far as I still get calls that from my mom that, you know, better sort of conversations. <laughs> um, I didn't raise you like that. All, all That still happens now at 26. Yeah. But I mean, it looked like you're just like, oh, she's pissed. She's losing control. And then you'll turn around to a ball boy and, you know, so, oh, hi, it's okay here. Yeah, I I always say uh, you know water please, and because you know they're kids, they're they're out there. I mean, some might be super into tennis. You could be their idol or or someone that they they've been dying to see and meet. And I I love doing doing the kids clinics and and being around them and saying thank you. I actually had a ball girl pass out on me one time during while I was in Auckland. She got overheated. Um, and I helped carry her off the court because I was like, this poor girl. And I saw her afterwards and, and gave her a, a racket. Um, but it's, they're, they're kids. I mean, what, what are you going to be mad at? It's not their fault. Well, the, the psychologist <laughs> in me tells me she's never really out of control because she's always nice to the kids. Yeah. I, I always will be. I may get impatient, but I'm an older sibling. I, I can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> The heart's in there when you turn to the kids. You're a softy <laughs> when you turn to the kids. I am a big softy. That's what everyone says, even though yeah. I, I do look like a crazy, intense, like angry person, but I am a big softy. So who is the sleeper right now? Who's the young gun, 14, 15? Who's coming up that we should watch for? I wouldn't have the slightest idea. 
you haven't seen them? Well, we don't interact with them. Yeah. So I wouldn't have the slightest idea. I, I wish I, we we would as far as because um, at fifteen, sixteen, they they're well, fourteen, fifteen, they're good enough to practice and train, and yeah. um, I honestly would have loved that as as a 14 15 year old to have a professional say hey come over let's go practice for a week and you know as Federer does it a whole bunch where he has the young guns come but I have no interaction with them and I don't know whose whose fault that is it might be my fault that I should be more into it but I would love to great I would love to I mean, for myself, I would have loved to have had someone take me under their wing. So yeah, wouldn't I wouldn't mind it at all. And something that I worry about is I spend a lot of time in Europe in the summer. I play tennis every day when I'm in Europe, and I go to the neighborhood courts. I play at Monte Carlo Country Club and stuff, but I go like into the Bay of Blue, into the Bay of Blue Racket Club over in the neighborhood, and Santa Margarita, just back in a neighborhood where it's just a clay court in the middle of a, a apartment complex or something. Middle of the day, middle of the week, every court is full of kids. I mean, every court, every day, full of kids all day long. And I drive around here, Dallas, L.A., whatever. Courts are not that full. They're much more passionate about it over there. and. I see now that they're starting programs that they're really starting to pull kids in more over here, and I'm really glad to see that. Well, I think I think it's actually going to be really interesting in the upcoming years for, for all sports. Just, first of all, I think tennis is and has gotten too expensive, I think. But I also think a lot of sports have with all these you know, club programs and, and things that you have to get your kid into. Um, otherwise, they're not going to be seen by a college scout. And all those things cost money. And, and that's going to take a kid away from that sport. And so it's going to be interesting in the upcoming years to see what kind of athletes uh, U.S. is going to produce. Because not only that, we're we're losing kids from sports because they just can't afford it. But also we're singular sporting so many kids so young yeah. that it takes that it's like, no, you still have to be a good athlete and go socialize with your friends. Go play three sports at yeah, a time. Exactly. That's what I did growing up. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't know any other way. There was no like, oh, no, you have to go play tennis and only tennis so early. It's like, no. Yeah, it was football, basketball and track. Yeah. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see how what, you know, the U.S. is going to be able to produce out of out of what the the leagues are doing now with, you know, the AAUs and and whatnot. It's going to be tough. Do you have time to socialize? Yeah, I was actually just in the desert with uh, some girlfriends hanging out. It's good to have some balance, though, right? Yes. I mean, you got to get away from it. Actually, I'm kind of uh, I always get asked about this you know even in the tennis tour of i keep a good balance of a social life as well as a professional life where i go i do the tourist things i go see the rome coliseum i go um skydiving i i went um i did i do all sorts of things because i'm not all about tennis i like to do other things so what do you do for fun if you're not playing tennis what do you do for really fun for for really fun well I like to play golf. That's one thing I like to do. Um, I've just started scuba diving. My older brother got me into it. Yeah. Um, I actually went sco- uh, shark diving with him in the Bahamas. That was crazy. And then I, I like to be with my family. As crazy as it, is, as it is, since I travel so much, just doing regular home things of sitting on my couch and doing nothing is super enjoyable to me because I don't get to do that all that much. But I'll be, I'm a California kid. I I'll be at the beach most of the time. Yeah. That'll be my fun fun times. So you like scuba diving? Yes, I do. Did you feed the sharks? Uh, they brought down chum. We were yeah. sitting in like a powwow circle, and they brought chum and feed into the middle. It was it was yeah. my second time diving by myself, and I was scared out of my mind. Was the guy in the chainmail suit? Yes, but we were not. <laughs> yeah, they tell you keep your shoulders together. Yes. Yeah, so yes. you don't look like a, a piece yes, of meat. Yes, nothing's fl- fl- flying around where you might get bit <laughs> yeah i've talked to that guy that's in that chain mill suit i'm a avid scuba diver and Are he you? says he's never been bitten where it's 
broken the skin through that chain mill searing, but he said he's had his arm yanked out of socket four or five times. Oh my gosh. Because they hold it out on a poker, you know, a long stick. Yes. And they say the shark hits it and rolls at the same time. And if it doesn't come off clean, it snaps his arm so fast that three or four times that he's had to come up with his arm out of socket to the top and they put his arm back in socket. Thank goodness I did not know this before I <laughs> went. Go <laughs> but did you notice as they hit it, they hit it and roll. Yes, yes. It comes off of the stick, but if it doesn't come off the stick, it snaps his arm so fast it's come out of socket. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was crazy enough that they were just putting the sharks to sleep. They were hypnotizing them. Oh, I know. It's just crazy. I thought crazy. that was crazy enough. <laughs> I did it one time, and then I thought, what the hell am I doing well, down here? My Uncle Brooks said, you probably should risk your life once a year, and so I'm I'm trying to live to that goal. Last year, I went skydiving. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I've never done that, nor am I ever going to. I, I might do it again, but I'm not, I'm not sure when or where, what kind of shark. I just cannot convince myself to jump out of a perfectly good airplane i would i'm actually going to do it again really my mom said i can't do it until my career's over but i would i would do it so did you do it by yourself i went with my coach and my physio um we were actually talking about it in a uh, tournament transportation car in perth australia that you know my physio had done it in romania and it was so cool i want to hit every continent that's my bucket list i was like yeah i've been talking about it with my cousin and my older brother we were talking about doing it and the guy driving the car said my son-in-law actually flies the plane for the the parachuting and so then it was like can you hook this up and literally two three days later we we did it were you connected to somebody connected to somebody yes yes so you haven't done it I won't do it solo. Solo. No, I need someone else to be responsible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. The scariest part, like, I thought it would feel like a roller coaster, like this, your stomach is kind of floating. It didn't feel like that. And it didn't feel like, you know, when you have those dreams that you're falling, you're falling? off. Didn't feel like that so either. So what did it feel like? It, it was so weird. It didn't feel like anything. Well, the sc- scariest part was you felt like you couldn't breathe because the air's moving so fast and it's so cold that you felt like you weren't breathing that was the scariest part oh jesus how <laughs> high were you um it took we had a full minute free fall so we were pretty high i don't remember it had to be eight thousand feet probably easily yeah i yeah. think i think we we're 10 actually yeah. we we're double digit you fell for a full minute because you get going pretty fast i got to do the parachute and everything yeah it was it was so cool so, so you'll cool. do it again i would do it again yes Ugh. i might have to keep my promise to my mom and do it at the end of my career oh, but god yeah. So what are you going to do after tennis? Um, I'll probably have to get a real life job. No, I <laughs> won't be capable. I don't know. I would probably hopefully be l- liking something. I always thought that I wouldn't, I would stop playing tennis when I didn't love it anymore. So I'd probably hopefully find something else that I love a lot more Yeah, and I'd be doing that instead. I don't know exactly what that will be. Can you see yourself staying in tennis in some other way like coaching or announcing i don't think i'd be capable of coaching just because i know the sacrifice i expect from my coach as far as investment time energy that i don't think i could do it all over again for a student or a pupil of any type but announcing yes i think i could do that as far as like an academy or something like that i don't think i'd be interested in that really but you never know never say never yeah if you weren't going to do something in tennis, what would it be? Um, I would love to do motivational speaking. I actually enjoy speaking. I, I enjoy being in front of of people. I was just in um, San Francisco doing a uh, panel conversation for uh, Train Like a Girl. And to inspire any sort of individual is, is a real feel-good feeling for me. I grew up going to the YMCA and um, being around, you know, kids that were paralyzed and didn't have the privileges I had of just working, functioning limbs. And for me to give back in that way, shape or form, I opened up a tennis court in uh, Compton area and just to give back and, and engage with, with kids and children or adults is is great i love engaging with people so i think motivational speaking as far as also giving back to the military i i would also do that well i can tell you 
when you have someone that has achieved what you've achieved and conquered the barriers and goals that you've conquered and gotten to the heights that you have in this sport, people listen to someone like you. When you go out and speak, they get a message from a champion that can say, these are the things that I did. This is what worked for me. These are the obstacles and how they were overcome. I'm telling you, people go to school on that. They study that. You would have a hell of an audience as a motivational speaker. I promise you, you would be good at that. No, it, it's, it'd be so much easier to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> yeah, really. The things you've done right, the things you've done wrong. I mean, those are the things that people want to know. They'll go to school on that, and it changes lives when they do. I no, promise I, you. I read books constantly of, of you know, the different athletes of what they've gone through. I just finished the All Blacks book, um, the New Zealand rugby team, and it's it's really inspiring. I'm always inspired by that sort of stuff. Yeah, you would be good at that too. You got a good sense of humor, and you <laughs> speak well. That would, be good. that would be good. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.